0: I was looking at a study this week, and it was on busyness. And researchers from the Columbia Business School looked into this idea of busyness in our lives. And they found that the, the, those who, uh, who were busier seemed to have elevated social status. That when they looked at different people and saw how they presented themselves, they found that uh, the busyness of a person it influences their perception of status in society so they did a series of experiments to uh, check out this hypothesis and uh, they varied in, in in a written description of someone uh, they varied what they were doing and then they then they gauged the response of those who were reading uh, what they uh, what they had read about this person so In one of the experiments, they read a short description of a a 35-year-old man and uh, it said that Paul works long hours and his calendar is always full. And then in contrast, some of the other participants in the studies read a similar story about Paul. And it says Paul does not work and has a leisurely lifestyle. And then they rated, you know, how did people view, how did they understand this person Paul? and the the paul that was busy and his calendar was so full was ranked higher on social status than the paul that lived a life of leisure we in our society have elevated that idea of busyness to one of the highest virtues that we might have in our society today that that being busy having a a packed calendar is 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 somehow the most important thing in our lives, and if you're the busier you are, it means that you're more important, that somehow you are uh, you you are at a higher social status uh, than than others who aren't so busy. And yet, it's interesting that it's not just a, a modern phenomenon that we have uh, uh, encountered this. Uh, someone once said, "Beware the barrenness of a busy life." Anybody know where this quote, who this quote is from? It would be a minor miracle if you did. This is Socrates, writing over 2,000 years ago. So apparently this really isn't such a, a new phenomenon in our culture today. But even 2,000 years ago uh, or more, uh, Socrates was making this comment on uh, the busyness of life. And the, the bar- he calls it the barrenness of it. That it doesn't produce it doesn't produce fruit, it may perhaps in the way that you would like. But there is a barrenness in it. A more modern writer has said it simply: stop the glorification of busyness. And so into this busy world that we have, and if we're honest with ourselves, we probably will will think the same thing: that that busyness is somehow uh, equated with uh, our value and our worth. But into all of that comes God's voice and God says not be busy he doesn't say fill your calendar with all sorts of activities but he says be still and know that I am God and we find this passage we find that in this passage today psalm 46 and psalm 46 says from the, for the director of music of the Sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at the break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts His voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done. The desolations He has brought on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So in this psalm, the psalmist here is talking About God, He is establishing something of the character of God for us. He is saying something about who God is, and that's always a good place to start a a conversation. Or in this case, uh, this Psalm, this song. This is the writer wanting to say something specific about God, and it's coming from the writer, really from the writer's perspective. How is the writer here seeing God? What does what is the characteristics of God? Uh, that he sees. There is, of course, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit at work in bringing these scriptures to uh, this psalmist, but it's coming really from their heart as well. You can see that. It's coming out of the relationship that this writer of this psalm has with God. What would you say if we asked you to write something about God? What would be something that you would write that would reflect your relationship with God? What kind of words would you use? What kind of ideas would you want to communicate to someone who is asking you, what is your experience of God? Is God a loving God? Is that your experience of God? That He is one who is loving and caring? Perhaps it's a God who is compassionate who has shown mercy to you. And that mercy that you've experienced from God is real in your life on a day-to-day basis. And so you'd write about His uh, compassion, His mercy to you. Perhaps you've had the experience of God bringing healing in some way. A physical or emotional, a spiritual healing to you. And so as you would sit and write a psalm, you would reflect on the healer God. Perhaps, You've experienced God's hand at work disciplining you, correcting you. And so you'd write about God as God the one who disciplines, who brings correction, who shapes my life in a way. So this writer of the Psalm is writing about God. And he starts out, he says, God in verse one, God is our refuge and strength and ever present help in times of trouble. He writes about God being a refuge, a place of safety and security, a place where uh, you come for refuge, come to to take a rest. God is a place, is a person who you go to when you're weary and tired and feel uh, like you need a break. God is a place of refuge. And this isn't very meaningful for the people of Israel, this idea of a place of refuge, because in 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 their day in that time and age, they had these cities of refuge that were identified and they were set aside as certain cities in the nation of Israel you could go to so if you had committed a crime and it was usually um, involuntary manslaughter that they talked about if you 'd committed this, so if you were doing something and uh, the, the great example is if you if you were chopping wood and the axe uh, the head of your axe broke off and flew and through the air and hit your neighbor in the head and killed him so it was entirely involuntary you would run to this city of refuge and they made the roads to the city of the to these cities of refuge easy and wide and smooth so you could run there quickly and you could hide in these cities and you would be uh, you would be uh, secure from any sort of vigilante action that may happen to you or vigilante justice that may be there. You would be safe there. You would be taking refuge in those cities. You would stay there until a trial came along and, uh, and, and it all worked out uh, in the end. You could stay there without fear of punishment until you were, had a proper trial. Now, it's unclear to us today exactly how that worked and exactly uh, if that really worked that way in practice. Uh, But the idea was well known. And so when he says, when he starts off and says, God is our refuge, immediately the Israelites would be thinking of these cities of refuge, a place of safety. And you know, even today in our church today, we are sometimes seen as a place of refuge. We should be seen as a place of refuge, a place where people can come and be safe. And although as I understand it, and and, uh, maybe our legal people can correct me on this, I don't believe that the churches are actually legally places of refuge. But you often hear about people coming into a church, and they live in the church for years because the legal authorities do not really want to come in and forcibly remove someone from a church. And so you read about people, and it often seems to be someone who who is sort of in a refugee kind of status. They come and they take refuge in a church. And I've heard of some churches where they've lived for two, three years in the church, never leaving the church building. And the church people come alongside and make sure that they are looked after, that they've got food to eat and a place to stay. And they live in the church as a place of refuge, a physical place of refuge. And so, we even carry that idea a little bit in some uh, churches into our lives today. But when we think of refuge, perhaps we don't think of that sort of refuge where it is a physical place fleeing some sort of legal action that's coming against you. But we think of it as a refuge for our soul, a place where we can go and take rest, a place where we can go and and be refreshed. And in a sense, God as our refuge, it's not that it's the absence of trouble, but it's recognizing God as our refuge as He has authority over our troubles. So we flee to God and we know that He is one who has authority over our troubles. He says also that God is our strength. Our strength to face the troubles that life brings to us. Sometimes we don't feel like we even have the strength to get out of bed in the morning, let alone face the troubles of each day. And yet, God is there to give us that strength. We try, and we don't try and deal with them on our own, but we come and we look to God to give us strength in those times of trouble to see us through. He says God is our ever-present help in times of trouble. He is God is there again to help us. Somehow God comes alongside. He is ever-present. He is always with us. So no matter where we are, no matter what kind of trouble we get in, God is there uh, to help us. God comes alongside and is there to give us that assistance we need in that time of trouble just to help us to overcome, to face the trouble that we have knowing that God is in charge of it. We might not understand all the whys of why what we're going through is happening, but God will help us in His way. And the, the, the writer of this psalm is sharing that experience. That God is that help in times of trouble. That's the hard part, I think is is relying on God, is looking for the power of God for that help in those times of trouble. And But we tend to want to look after it ourselves to deal with our, the troubles that we have, deal with them ourselves, not go to God, but uh, the writer here is saying, God is there. God is there to help us. He is always there with us. And then he goes on and uh, he says, in verse 2 and 3 that we will have no fear. He says therefore we will not fear because we know God is those things in verse 1 that he is our refuge, our strength, our help. We won't fear. It says at the beginning of verse 2 therefore. The reason that we will not fear is because God is our help, our refuge and our strength. And so we don't need to fear when God when troubles comes along we will not fear. And the writer says, uses that word carefully. Therefore, as a result of, of knowing who God is, of knowing his presence in our lives, when troubles come, we don't fear them. This flows, this, this lack of fear flows from our understanding of God. It's a personal response to the problems that come our way, the storms and the earthquakes that he describes in verse 2 and 3. So does our view of God shape our response to these times of trouble? Do we, do we face these times of trouble and we go looking and saying, God, where are You in this? How are You helping? How can You be my refuge and strength? Or is it the other way around perhaps sometimes? Is our view of God rolling out of the way we handle difficulties? We see how we handle difficulties And we see, does God come into those times? Do we even look to God in in those times? And so maybe we see that. Even in the small things in life, we have that same kind of attitude towards God. When we need help, do we go to God? We don't like to often. We're very independent-minded people. We're very... Uh, We want to rely on our own resources. We don't want to be indebted to someone else for lending us a hand. We don't want to go to God and say, I need you, God. Just think about when you go to Home Depot and you're in this massive store and you're looking for a couple of little wall anchors. And you're wandering through this store and you don't even have an idea where to begin looking for these things. And an associate comes up and says, can I help you? You go, no, no, I'm all good. And you're looking around thinking, I'm going to wander up and down through aisle 72 until I find this little thing. I'm not going to ask for help. Why? Because we don't, somehow we don't want to be dependent. We want to do it ourselves, right? We don't like to ask for help. Even when there's someone standing there and their job is to help you and you say, no, I don't want your help. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend an hour looking for this thing and if I just said, yeah, I'm looking for wall anchors, they'd say it's aisle 32 at the front and it'd save you 45 minutes of your time wandering through the store. But we don't want to do that. And I think it's like that with our relationship with God too. We don't want to bother Him. Maybe we think He's too busy or our problems are too small and we're too unimportant for God to, to really think about when our lives are crumbling around us, when we're facing difficulties, when we're facing challenges and everything seems to be weighing on us and weighing us down, we sometimes still don't want to go to God and ask when we really do need that help. But we should. We should not fear those difficulties that might come up. But instead, we will not fear. We will trust in God. And the true the 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 really interesting thing about this is that God does not promise a trouble-free life. He does not say uh, in verse 2 that these things won't happen. The earth will not give way or the the waters will not roar and foam. They will. They do anyway. But God is there with us. The prophet Isaiah in uh he is in talking about this. We're working here. Prophet Isaiah? In Isaiah forty three verse two. Now I got it, I now I need to look it up. There we go. Okay, Isaiah forty three verse two. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Think about what the prophet's saying here. Is He saying you won't pass through any waters? Is He saying when the the rivers are sweeping around you, uh, when He's saying you won't walk through any fires? No. This is God speaking through the prophet and He's saying when you're walking through these rivers, when they're raging around you, when you are walking through the fire, God will be with you. God will be helping you. God will sustain you through those things. But it doesn't mean you won't be going through them. And so, in Psalm 46, when he says, the mountains are falling into the hearts of the sea, the waters are roaring and foaming, the mountains are quaking, we will not fear because we know that God is with us. Not that we will uh, not go through those things, but we will. So we don't fear. And then he moves on and in verse uh, uh, verse 4 and 5, and he talks about a city of hope, a place where God dwells, a place where the city will endure and God will help. And this image, these imageries that he's speaking here bring to mind the book of Revelation at the very end of the story that God has has given to us. We come to Revelation 22 verses 1 to 5. And the Bible says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face and His names will be on their forehead. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. This is a, a message of hope that uh, that the writer is giving us here, that, jo- that, uh, that John is giving us in Revelation. And I think it's reflecting partly Psalm 46 when he talks about this city whose streams make glad the river of God. And we see there's a stream of life flowing out from the city in the book of Revelation. It's a place where God dwells. And that re- image of that city in Revelation is a place where God dwells and we as his people are there with him. His people are gathered around him. It says he will be our God. He will be with us and we will be his people. It's a picture of hope that we have. A picture that's given to us to give us hope in that time when all those things are happening around us, we have that kind of hope. When the psalmist wrote this, obviously he wasn't referring to Revelation. That came a thousand or more years later. But he was thinking of the city of Jerusalem. When we have that hope, We don't think of the city of Jerusalem in Israel, but we look forward to that new Jerusalem of Revelation 21. We have that hope that he gives us, a city that is yet to be, but is surely coming. When we look at Revelation chapter 21 and 22, and we read them all, and we won't take the time to do it here, it just fills our hearts with hope, with gladness and joy that this is coming a hope of being with God himself where the bible says god will god himself will wipe away every tear from our eyes there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain that's a message a picture of hope for us as it was for the writer of the psalms here it's a picture of the power of god overcoming all things overcoming the forces of nature the forces of evil so that he can Wipe away every tear from our eyes. That's a message of power from God. I don't know about you, but when I look at the news these days, it seems like there's an abundance of death and mourning and crying and pain in the world. And this message of hope comes through countering all that's going on in the world around us and giving that hope a final, total hope of peace, of justice, of love in this world. Uh, this is a picture of the new Jerusalem and it's a river that brings joy uh, that is re- coming from the city of God, uh, a place where God Himself dwells. So then in contrast to all of, to that in verse 4 and 5, to, in contrast to that message of hope, that message of peace and joy, of the presence of God, it comes and it says, there is uproar. We're stuck again. A message of uproar. Of distress. Of confusion. In verse 6, nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts His voice. The earth melts all that uproar and confusion that we see in the world around us, there is a voice coming. A voice of judgment. He lifts His voice. The earth melts. In amongst all of that noise, all of that uproar and confusion, God lifts His voice and the earth melts. We might be uncomfortable with the idea of God's judgment. We don't often talk about it, but here it's coming through clearly. We might think of judgment as more of an Old Testament idea that we don't have to uh, really talk about. It's not really one for the followers of Jesus. And yet, when we look at the book of Revelation, again, we see words of judgment as much as words of hope. And here in Revelation chapter 19, just before Remember, just before we get to the end of the book of Revelation where we have those beautiful pictures of hope and restoration, we have a picture of judgment. In Revelation 19.11, the Bible says, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider, rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself." He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him riding white on white horses and dressed in fine linen white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has the name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. Without question, this is a picture of Jesus coming and a picture of judgment. And however you want to interpret Revelation, how literally or how figuratively, however you want to interpret it, you can't run away from this idea that Jesus is coming. He is coming back as King of kings and Lord of lords. And He is coming back in a picture of judgment. The psalmist says He lifts His voice the earth melts. He is coming back. Jesus is coming back with authority, with power to bring that kind of judgment. We're often cautious about judgment. We don't want to speak about judgment. We're afraid of that. We're afraid it might uh, people might uh, respond negatively to that idea of judgment. And yet, it's there in the Bible. Fairly clearly for us that Jesus is coming and He is judging. Then verse seven, He goes on and He says, "The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The Lord Almighty is with us." So again, He's saying uh, in this in this time when God lifts His voice and the earth melts, this. God of Jacob, this Lord Almighty, He is with us. He is with us. These, these words here the, in, that He uses for, the, for God, the Lord Almighty, the God of Jacob, are two Hebrew words. Uh, Yahweh and Elohim. The two names of God that the Old Testament uses are both here in this passage. This is talking about the one true and living God. There's no doubt about who is, about where God is or whom He aligns with. The Lord Almighty is with us. The, the Lord, the, the God of gods. The King of kings. He is with God's people. They don't fear because God is with them. This is a great reassurance that the power of God is resting on the One who is with them. And then he goes on in verse 8. And he invites people to see who is this God. The psalmist gives an invitation to come and see the work of God and learn from Him about what He does. He He describes the desolations He has brought on earth. He has made wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. These are words of power and authority over all the world, over all nations. He talks about uh, the, the, the the desolations that He has brought. He brings this. He brings war to an end to all nations. He, Everyone is under the power of God. This is a, a statement of the power and authority of God. And then into that statement of power and authority... God speaks in a remarkable way right here. Here, up to this point, it's been the psalmist speaking. And at this point, God breaks in, so this He switches. In all of this, He's describing God, and then the writer switches, and God says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. What we've seen up to this point is a description of the power of God. The power of God that sustains His people. The power of God that brings judgment on the whole world. The power of God that overcomes all the other forces. The political maneuvering in the world. The other forces that may be there. And God speaks and He says, Be still. Be still and know that I am God. We have seen God as the one who is the one who uh, provides that refuge, that strength, that hope, the authority over all the earth, and He says, "Be still. Stop. Just stop. Stop everything, and know that I am God." It's hard to know whether. Uh, this passage is connected. But in Mark 4.39, Jesus says a similar thing. He's on the boat with His disciples. A storm comes up. Those of you who have been in church for a while know this story. Jesus gets up. His disciples are worried. They're worried they're going to drown. That, they aren't, that they, uh, their lives are being threatened. And so Jesus is asleep and they wake Him up. And Jesus, it says, He got up. Jesus got up. He rebukes the wind and says to the waves, Quiet! Be still! Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. It has that same ring of authority here, doesn't it? Where Jesus speaks to the forces of nature and they obey Him. And He says a very similar thing. Quiet! Stop it! Be still! These words that are used here are 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 very specific words that are are very strong, one of them is it comes from the idea of a muzzle uh, you know muzzling a a dog so they can't bite, they can't bark. another word that's used there means an involuntary silence that you're commanded into silence it's not just given it's not just a request, but as that those words go out, you don't have a choice but to be silent so when God says, be still and know that I am God. It's coming almost as a, as a, a command that you must obey because it's coming with the power of God. God is, is that One who has authority over all things. And when God commands us to be still, we need to do that. Finally, He says again in Psalm 46, verse 11, the Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. In our busyness, do we take time to be still? We need to stop and be still and know that He is God. Because sometimes God doesn't speak to us in a loud, commanding voice and we see the example of Elijah and as he is in uh, as he meets with God and the Lord says to Elijah he says Elijah's in a cave and he, the Lord says go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord for the Lord is about to pass by then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord and the Lord was not in the wind after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the, mount of the, the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? God was in that gentle voice. How do you hear that gentle voice? Only when we are still can we hear that gentle voice. Do we take time? to be still, to hear that voice of God. In our busyness, we elevate uh, that almost to, a, to being our God, Is our busyness. Instead, we need to say, God is our God, and I'm going to be still. And so I want us just to practice that. As the worship team comes, and as they play quietly in the background, I want us just to take time to be still to spend a few minutes here this morning in our service and just be still before God. See what God has to say to you in this moment of quietness, in these moments of stillness. We can be still and know that He is God.